As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It is a time of change and all as we readjust to the end of the year and maybe readjust after the election. Joining us now, someone with terrific perspective on this, Alan Ruskin, Chief International Strategist at Deutsche Bank, is as well. Alan, I want to go to the path from ultra-accommodative Stanley Fisher to accommodative to an unmeasurable neutrality and to what Dominic Constum over at Mizuho calls super restrictive, which is basically disinflation, even with oil, even with rents. How close are we to restrictive? How close are we to super restrictive? Uh, great question, Tom, because I think you can't just look at this in terms of monetary policy. You have to look at it in terms of fiscal policy as well. And I think the most underrated element in terms of the policy stance is that fiscal policy from 2021 was really the most stimulus we've ever had by quantums. Yeah, I think it had a 10% of GDP stimulus at that point for over those two years, about five times what a large stimulus is. That's still reverberating. That's still showing up in excess savings. That's still buffering the consumer. And to me, that is creating the underlying resilience. That means that interest rates can be much higher than they would otherwise be. Right. And that interest rates look like they're much tighter than they are. An arch theme of your colleague David Folkert's Landau has been there will be fiscal stimulus clearly in Europe to rebuild Europe after an horrific war as well. Do you see fiscal leveling, fiscal stimulus, or maybe even some form of, of drop down uh, in fiscal spending in America? Look, I think uh, a lot is going to hinge on uh, Tuesday and the events thereof. Uh, I think the anticipation is that fiscal policy is going to be a lot tighter going forward. I think the question there again is what are we going to see in terms of front loading from the uh, lame duck section, the uh, session in terms of, you know, the debt ceiling, how much constraint is that going to impose? Uh, but I think the anticipation will be that uh, we will see tightening. But I again want to emphasize the fact that the lagged fiscal stimulus uh, from 2020 and 2021 is still going to act as a buffer for 2023 and 2024. So it's still going to be substantive. And I'm not that worried about the tightening on the fiscal side. 
Okay, but there's a very strange confluence of bad news is good news for markets right now. And we can put fiscal spending in there. It's good when we get bad data because that means yields will go down. It's good when we get less fiscal spending because it means bond yields will go down and perhaps it'll cap inflation. At what point does that run out and people start to think, okay, wait a second, this isn't going to support the economy. And that is negative broadly for the dollar and for risk assets. Yeah, Lisa, I think if you look at the past patterns whereby uh, we've had uh, a Democrat president with a divided Congress, uh, you've seen, uh, as you might expect, that uh, fiscal deficits tend to come down. You see bond yields well supported, but you also see equities you know, tend to underperform and you see the underlying economy, the GDP numbers tend to be weaker. So um, I think you asked the right question there, that uh, it does tend to add to underlying weakness and that good news for the bond market uh, is only going to filter through to some extent as far as the economy is concerned. I don't think it's going to be sufficient, for example, to stop a recession, say, uh, by the time the end of 2023 into 2024. We had Ben Laidler on earlier in the show, earlier in this hour, and he was saying that he thinks that there's going to be a very big move up in risk assets because that there will be cutting of interest rates by the Federal Reserve. And we'll go back, not to the same extent, but to a similar playbook as the one that we've come accustomed to. Do you think that that is likely? Is that something that people can count on in the next 12 months or perhaps even 18 months, even if it doesn't seem like it's on the horizon now? Uh, I think that's a very optimistic view. I think, uh, you know, we're trying to establish all the things that Powell uh, highlighted, which is where's the peak and what is the shape of the rate cycle at the peak? And increasingly, that peak just seems to drift up. You know, we're now at a 5% handle. It's possible. And I think the skew is still to the top side of that. We're thinking in terms of uh, um, the shape and people felt the higher we got, the quicker rates would actually come down. In fact, now increasingly there's a feeling that rates won't come down quickly, that it's more like an inverted L at the top uh, of, of, of the uh, cycle. So to me, none of that is uh, that optimistic from a, you know, necessarily from a growth uh, cycle standpoint. Alan, if we dash to $100 Brent again, is the $100 a barrel brand if we see it now at $98? Is it the same as $100 the last time around? I think you've always got to, uh, you know, just assess what the overall backdrop, uh, you know, macro backdrop is. I mean, I think it would be upsetting from a sort of a stagflation standpoint if we started to see oil prices move in the, you know, in the so-called sort of wrong direction from a stagflation mm -hmm. standpoint. I think you know, falling on a weakening economy, uh, one would argue that perhaps it'd have even more negative effect than it would have had in, a, in, in prior uh, right. you know, last few quarters. Alan, a, a general question here. Let's call it Econ 101 this morning. I believe there are 14 core CPI measurements in each country. Is there a value to looking at headline inflation now, or do each of us have to find a core series we're comfortable with? But I think core was seen as uh, helpful in terms of telling you what the underlying picture was, you know, where the natural gravitation would be uh, over, say, a 12-month period when uh, food and energy prices, erratic food and energy prices, work their way out. But I think if you're asking questions about, uh, you know, what uh, is inflation doing for the average man in the street, then skip the core. I mean, you've really got to focus on uh, the total inflation and, uh, uh, you know, it would be a travesty, really, to start removing uh, food and energy from those kind of measures. But I think 
core for the economist trying to look, uh, say, 12 months out is, is still reasonable. And you've got to search country by country, I'm afraid, Tom. When you look country to country, I just want to wrap it up with this question about Europe. And we've been talking a lot about the U.S. and the fiscal spending in the U.S. and how we're going to see the dollar progress. But at what point does Europe become attractive again, considering how much it's sold off, but also considering that it faces a much bleaker picture in many ways than the United States? Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot uh, turns on the politics. So you had somewhat optimistic uh, uh, mentions of uh, the U.S. uh, touching base with the Russians, which is, you know, I think going to egg people to think in terms of some sort of uh, Ukraine peace deal eventually. Um, That's obviously an optimistic view of things. Um, So that's going to be crucial, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, how you think about Europe going forward. Um, That being said, I think there is some built-in resilience that we're starting to see from the economies. Uh, You are seeing uh, an ability to navigate uh, some of the energy shocks. So I don't think it's all pessimism, really, in a way. But I think you're still going to have to just wait for that political signal before there's a real buying opportunity. Alan, thank you, as always, buddy. Appreciate your time. Alan Ruskin there of Deutsche Bank. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Right now, and this is a joy, we truly begin our coverage with Wendy Schiller, director of the Taubman Center for American Politics and Policy at Brown University, with Greg Vallier, just a foundation of what surveillance does on politics. Professor Schiller, I want you to address, as in your memo, the midterm messaging that has led us in the last 48 hours to indeterminate polling. Give us the messaging dynamic, red and blue, versus the polling shock that we're going nowhere in the last two days. Well, what's what's interesting is sort of a very late shift by the Democrats, we've talked about this before, uh, to the economy and also attacking Republicans on uh, Social Security and Medicare. Uh, The problem with that strategy of the Democrats is many people who are over the age of 65 already voted. Uh, That's the biggest bulk of people who vote by mail. Uh, And also people between the ages of 41 to 65, a lot of that early voting is coming from them. They care about the economy. It's just a little bit too late, I think. And, uh, you know, they misplayed the abortion issue by overemphasizing 
causing it nationally and not being strategic about that. They did some redistricting decisions that we could talk about. We don't have time. In 2020, we have that case in Rhode Island where they over-districted. In other words, put too many Democrats in one district and left the other district vulnerable. So now we've got a potential for a Republican to be elected in Rhode Island for the Congress. That hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, so I think, on the other hand, the Democrats had a lot of losses in 2020 in the House. So, you know, the damage actually might be mitigated. In other words, the Republicans can pick up a lot of seats and win control, but it won't necessarily look like 2011 right. or or 20 um, or 1995. Where are we on the tipping point where the mail-in voting, the pre-voting becomes more important than the Tuesday voting? That's a really great question. Places like Pennsylvania, for example, we're all watching that state Senate race in particular. They start counting Tuesday morning. So you may not have that kind of blue wave, red wave kind of thing going on. It may take them a long time. There's about, I think, 550,000 or 600,000 early votes by mail. But they start counting at least on Tuesday. It's some other states like Ohio. They accept mail-in ballots for another 10 days. So, you know, if it's really tight in some of these states, it could be a while before we know the answers. But midterm elections are about a referendum on the part in power in the White House, most of the time that party loses seats. You know, when you have such division, you're going to switch control of the chambers a lot more frequently. You know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have as much division. And so, you know, it's harder to flip control. But it is typical for the party in the White House to lose seats in a midterm election. Wendy, is this a referendum on this administration or is it a larger referendum? There was a story in Axios basically talking about how uh, leading Democratic voices are saying the party is seen as too extreme and that this basically is a big clarion call for a rethink in some of the messaging more broadly. Do you agree that that is the conclusion if the Democrats do face some pretty severe losses uh, this particular week? Lisa, I think it's just so much more complicated than that. I would be cautious of over-interpreting the results of this particular election. Yeah, people are concerned about inflation. It's still hard to get a new car. There's ridiculous inflation markups on new cars, for example. I mean, people's, people feel it. They feel it every day. This could just be a big example of bad campaigning by the Democratic Party in terms of messaging. They had tons of money. Uh, and did they not emphasize what they should have emphasized, sort of average campaign 101? And in terms of democracy, if we have turnout, you know, we already have more early voting than we had in 2018, you know, by about a million votes already. And we don't even know the full extent of early voting. So if we have really big turnout and you say democracy is dying, that's a conflicting message again. So the Democrats have to be cautious. Everybody has to be cautious about interpreting the results of this particular election. But it is true that the Democrats did a lot, That's they say they did, for a lot of the people who are not voting for the Democratic Party in November. And where is that mismatch most acute? And how do they have to localize their messaging as they move forward? Well, especially when it comes to crime, and I say this living in New York City and living in New York, and we have seen this become a huge campaign issue that actually makes this highly blue state suddenly on the ballot when it comes to the governor race. What's your interpretation of that? And I understand that there are single idiosyncratic messages, but is this just a messaging issue or is this a policy issue? Well, I mean, you know, in terms of crime, you know, the, the irony for the Democrats or the frustration of the Democrats is that part of the violent nature of crime is that more people have guns. You know, it's just easier to get a gun and many more people have guns. That's due to basically Republican slash NRA opposition to gun safety legislation. But the Rep Democrats have just lost that message entirely. Uh, and it's true. People want to be safe when they go into a supermarket or a movie theater or the subway, wherever they are, they want to be safe. And it's been typical that the Republicans have taken advantage of that in, in electoral terms. And there is also 
also sort of a racial coded message in criminal, sort of focusing on crime in some areas as well. So the pushback by the Democrats against that messaging hasn't been exactly the right mix of messaging about security versus being, you know, uh, cautious on on uh, using racist or stereotypical tropes on crime. So I think the Democrats have some work to do on messaging. They also have to figure out who's going to run their party. They have people who are, you know, no offense, people in their 70s and 80s, you know, all good, but they have a fairly old bench. And the Republicans have a fairly younger bench, with the exception of Donald Trump, who uh, who still has a lot of vitality. But nonetheless, you had the governor of Virginia, you know, relatively young guy, probably has a future in national politics. The Democrats have figured out who is there, who are their spokespeople, and what age group are they are they picking from? And that's that's a big rethink for them, and they better do it fast. Wendy, thank you. Wendy Schiller there of Brown University. I think you missed that at the end, Tom. Perhaps for the best. Wendy, thank you very much. We are thrilled to bring you Dan Ives, Senior Equity Research Director at Wedbush. Dan, you and I were talking about this. I need clarity on sales. The two fancy phones with the phone war that's out there, T-Mobile and all that, am I right that the Pro and the Pro Max are selling like hotcakes? Look, I think demand on Pro has been unprecedented relative to what we're seeing in this macro. And I think you saw that with September results and even the guidance. And you see that even come out of China. But for Apple, as we saw last night, the issue is not demand, it's the supply and obviously the zero COVID in China. That's the gut punch that we're dealing with this morning. Okay, so weight that on a scale, and I don't mean to get mathy here, Dan, but I think we do with the Bloomberg reporting. What percent of this is about China lockdown? What percentage is uh, about demand of the phones underneath the Pro and the Pro Max? Yeah, so let's break that down. If you, in terms of the Bloomberg report, that's really talking when you look at iPhone 14 Plus. I mean, that's really been the strikeout for Apple coming out of the gate. It's, that's where you're seeing the lower production in terms of what, coming out of Asia. But but on the other side, the strength is coming out of iPhone 14 Pro. A typical mix is about 60 65%. We think it's closer to 80 85% this quarter. That's bullish. That's positive for ASP. It's positive for margins. And that's really what the street's focused on here. So, Dan, I guess that you're rejecting this idea that this could be demand-driven reduction in production. Is that correct? That you think that that's uh, perhaps not a correct interpretation of Apple's announcement? Well, I mean, if you look at just off the quarter, I mean, when Cook gave guidance, and I think across big tech, the last four or five years, no one's been better in terms of forecasting. They're seeing strength. And I believe iPhones would still be up year over year. But obviously, in terms of the zero COVID shutdown, we think that probably takes off two, potentially 3% of iPhone units. Demand's not the issue. It continues to be supply. And I think that's our the frustration for Cupertino in terms of what they're dealing with in China. Although you're not necessarily seeing people expect bigger margins. In other words, we're not hearing that perhaps Apple will raise the price of the iPhone 14 in response to the lack of supply. So does this mean that Apple and a lot of companies have kind of reached the end of how much they can offset some of these, pri- these pressures with higher prices? Yeah, Lisa, it's a great point. I also think it speaks to why within the four walls of Cupertino, why it's so important from a chip and own their own ecosystem. And I think that's what Apple's done. It gives them more flexibility on the supply chain and from a margin perspective. And, and that's something that's playing out more and more. But I think really the narrative is that iPhone 14 Pro, despite obviously dark storm clouds, is seeing strength, despite what we see, what I'd call almost a nightmare 
with a large cap tech earnings season. Dan, in the hallways of all these fancy tech people with their egos and their business beliefs and all that, what's the difference between a hiring freeze and outright firings? Explain that body language, not company to company, but within the industry, within the culture you follow. Well, in, in the Valley, especially in tech, the last, I call it seven, eight years, I mean, a lot of these companies were hiring 15, 20, sometimes 30% more employees per year. So in terms of a freeze, they were just used to it. You need 10 more engineers in a project, you get it. Now what you're starting to see clearly a slowing down. You're starting to finally see these cuts. A lot of these companies are spending like 1980s rock stars. But you're starting to see now cuts across the board because they really want to make sure that they get ahead of this from a margin perspective. I still don't view it as ominous. It's still more between a freeze and slight cuts. If it continues, then it becomes a dark winter. Hey, Dan, thank you. Dan Ives of Wedbush, still looking for 200 on Apple. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Richardson with us, chief economist at ADP Research, and she's fabulous because not only working with ADP with her thumb on the pulse of American wages, but also her work on government economics. Thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me. You walked in and said, hey, stupid, this is what matters. In the media, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. (laughs) No, it's it's Monday. It's stupid Monday for me. But the media overweights technology because we got technology in the brain. And you're saying layoffs at Lyft or Apple, wherever, it's not that big a deal? Well, it's a big deal for the tech sector. It's a big deal for tech employees. But in terms of the overall workforce, tech information sector is about 2%. So when you I never would have guessed that. Two percent. So when you're talking about what's really the heavy hitters in the labor force, right. it's services. Services is it, when it comes to consumer facing <clears throat> services like leisure and hospitality, which right. we know suffered the most during the pandemic. Retail sector, that's important. Okay. Professional business services, so all your accountants out there, that's important. The tech is is marginal. What is this what is the service dynamic into this election coming off the ADP report, coming off the full employment reports on Friday. What's the service dynamic right now? It's all about wages. And it's all about leisure and hospitality, really, because it's 
fat has been the big growth sector. It's interesting. In January of 2021, the wage growth in leisure and hospitality was the lowest of any sector we track. Now it's the highest, and it's been at double digits since uh, the summer for a very long time. It's what's driving up wage growth. But as that dynamic changes, you might see wages start to peter out in terms of acceleration, but still remain high at these elevated levels. We're all waiting for this supply side response. Any sign of it whatsoever? Well, yeah, a little bit here and there. Just a hint of it? Can you walk us through it? In pockets. I mean, there was a a little bit of movement, and I'm talking about labor supply. Of course, yeah. Hopefully we're on the the same page. We're on the same page. (laughs) We we did see some people. (laughs) There's so many supply issues here. But we did see some people move back into the labor market in the fall. We had the promise of a normal school season, and so that was helpful. But if you look at that labor force participation rate, it's still stubborn, and retreated last month. That is an issue because that suggests a bit more permanence to the fact that the work working age supply has, you know, shrunk. And what does that mean for growth going forward? Not just when we get through this inflation cycle, but in the years ahead. Well, this is the inflation cycle I wanted to talk about. So on the way up, inflation kicked higher really, really quickly. Do you consider it to be stickier on the way down? Is that the way this usually works out? It's stickier, and I think it's going to be more persistent. The Fed's already admitted that the persistence is much more than it has been in previous cycles, that the supply shortages, those dynamics, globalization, you know, automation that we're pushing uh, inflation down, aren't they don't have the same power they used to. And the demographic changes are not having the same power it used to to keep inflation low. So it's not its not only likely that this inflation cycle is stickier, that it's also likely that future levels of inflation are more persistent than we've seen historically. You guys were talking about the supply uh, issue in terms of workers coming back into the workforce. How can we understand the fact that the participation rate has not creeped up, that it is still actually going lower on a month-to-month basis if you look at the latest read. Why? You know, we all talk about economics, but we forget that there's a huge psychological factor undergirding this entire labor market. This was not just a supply shock. This was a people shock. And people over the last two years are making different decisions. They're giving up that second job. Uh, They're deciding to live on one income. They're switching industries. And we've seen that in the quits rate. So in in combination, all these different uh, decisions at the household level uh, means that the workforce has become smaller. And so how do you get the workforce back up? Well, that you might have to reskill workers for different jobs, jobs that make it worth it to get off the sidelines. So what does that mean in terms of inflation and how quickly it can really come down? We were talking about how, at least on the product side, we are seeing some, some reasons to be optimistic about disinflationary forces, but not so much on the other sides based on what you're talking about. When do we get back to 2%? Well, productivity is the fly in the ointment of the labor market. We need more productivity, and we haven't seen it. It's productivity that grows you out of this inflation stasis, right? It's when more workers are more productive, creating more output. Right now, we have more workers with the same output or producing less output. And that's not the way you grow out of inflation. That's really the issue. I did a tweet Friday out to Chad Jones, a giant out at Stanford on productivity. And let me ask you, because you're you're weaned in this. I mean, it's what you've done for uh, years, Neela, and that is how do you measure productivity of the new economy of work from home. I get that from a big corporation like ADP, work from home is maybe countable. 
But other than that, are we flying blind in this vaunted productivity analysis? You know, you've made a really interesting and really important point because over the last two years, the economy has become even more digitized. Um, and so the standard measures of productivity may not hold. And maybe there's some good news on this side that we're actually more productive than we think. We're just not counting it right. But if that's the case, we should see that show up in GDP growth, right? And we haven't. Just like yet. Bloomberg surveillance, we know we're more productive than you know. We are. I mean, you look at our <laughs> productivity <laughs> analysis, and, and they don't give us credit for it. it we're, we're, just, where you're going. we're just the hyper product. That's why I asked you the question, <laughs> Neela. I need to talk about policy then. Policy going forward from here. Are we at restrictive, and how restrictive are we, and how the how do we know? Great question. Um, we're restrictive in pockets. You can definitely see. Let's just put it this way: where supply has been chronically short like in housing, yep. the policy works. But the policy only works because there's not that many houses to begin with and prices were skyrocketing already. If there was a greater supply of housing, even a 7% mortgage rate wouldn't keep the tailwind of demographics mm. at bay. But it's because that housing is chronically undersupplied right. that the rate is actually is having an effect. So where you have supply shortages and a higher borrowing cost, you're seeing an effect. Right. It's not happening in the labor market, though. And now, unfair question for Monday. You don't have to answer this if you want, but all of Global Wall Street watching us, listening on radio as well, want your update on the new ADP report. You know the pinata this has been. Back to Dr. Zandi and all. What's the knowledge base you have about the quality of your new improved ADP report? It's a different approach. We start right. with over 25 million workers, and we do something that is a pivot. Instead of forecasting the Friday number on a Wednesday, yes. we provide an independent measure based on ADP client base. And this is the future of, of data. Love it. Love this it. Is the How much timeline do you need? How much statistical end do you need where you can say this has veracity? I think we're in that moment now. Really? We're there already? We yeah. have a very expansive labor market. ADP pays one in six of U.S. workers in the United States. I didn't want States. to turn this into a commercial, but I'm not trying to, to but you asked me. You asked. <laughs> 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 yeah. And so, what, and this you is want to sell I'll on the side? This is where I'll broaden, broaden it, because the corporate Where's sector is zero? delivering with high-frequency data. Sure. We don't just get a read every month. We don't just get it once a month. We get it every day. And I think ADP is not alone with other companies that are getting reads on inflation, on productivity. And so when it comes to the future of data, it's not just this going to be with government statistics. So it's Tom's going to be there. with the government notes. as well, uh, corporate there. sector as well. I could sense the frustration. Does it frustrate you that if Wednesday doesn't forecast Friday, people just think it's useless? You know, I have lots of frustrations, honestly. Is that, is that one of them? <laughs> comes to data. Um, that's <clears throat> not it, because what I can say when I have an independent metric is, look, it's one of many. It's a supplement. Don't say this is a substitute. It's not. It will never be. But it's another read on the economy. And at a time when the economy has become more complex, more affected by rate sensitivity and government debt and fragmentation globally, you need as many credible resources as you can get. And so we offer this to Wall Street. Take a look. 
disagree, like it, don't like it, figure out when it works for you, but it is another data point for you to look at. They should clip this and put it on the website. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Doing a fabulous job. Don't worry, we probably will. (laughs) Thank you for coming in. Always good to see you. Thanks. It's good to see you in person. Nita Richardson there of ADP. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.